0: Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. You didn't bring a Bible with you this morning. There are Bibles available that you can use in the pure acts in front of you. If you'll reach in there and dig out that black Bible and open it up to page 1126, you'll arrive at Romans chapter 2. I'm going to read the whole text this morning, all of chapter 2 for us. We get started here. Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. Do you suppose this, O man? When you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them on the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of truth, you, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. For indeed, circumcision is of value if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. If, therefore, the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who through having the letter of the law and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. Let's pray. God, our Father, thank You for this portion of Holy Scripture. Thank You that under inspiration of Your Spirit, the Apostle Paul has recorded for us these important words. That here in this text written 2,000 years ago to first century Jews, there is great truth, and application for us here and now, 20 centuries later. Our Father, may You enable us this morning by Your Spirit to understand what has been said and how it applies. May You incline our hearts to listen carefully, Father, to the admonition of this word. May You examine our hearts and reveal to us in a pocket of unbelief that by Your Spirit we might forsake it and embrace wholly the Lord Jesus Christ. Honor Yourself, Father. Glorify Yourself. Magnify Your name through the preaching of Your Word. Amen. For the past five weeks, we have been working our way through chapter 2, studying what Paul had to say to the first century Jew. With regard to their sin, their guilt before their creator, and with regard to their own religious and moral standing and its inability to make them right with God. Chapter one, you'll remember in Romans was Paul's indictment of the Gentiles, the pagans, those outside of the people of God, that is Judaism. And in chapter two, he has turned to the Jews and he has been laboring away to dismantle all of their religious props that they had accumulated to themselves in order to try to shield themselves from their own guilt before their creator. their and the wrath of God that is due upon them. Paul is doing this and will continue to do this in the early part of chapter three that he might then bring about the full indictment that begins in verse 9 of chapter 3 and carries us through to the end of, uh, of his indictment whereby he brings all the world before the bench of God and proves everyone to be guilty. Thus setting the stage for Christ. The only solution to man's problem. And so as we have gone through this chapter two and it's addressed to the Jew of the first century, there's cultural things going on here that we've addressed along the way. There's one more we're going to deal with this morning as we begin in verse twenty five and finish out chapter two. And as we work through these things, we have been trying to make application to the here and now and in particular to the youth of this church. For the young in this church are growing up with great religious privilege themselves. You are growing up among the people of God. You have been exposed to the treasures and riches of the Word of God. You have had the benefit of Christian parents and a community of believers. Much like the Jew of the first century. And yet, for all of your advantages, you too must understand your need for a personal faith commitment to Jesus Christ. That you cannot ride into heaven on the coattails of your parents. That your outward displays of religious piety are unsuccessful in making you right before God and in fact leave you condemned and empty. And so this text written to the Jew of the first century is very applicable to us here this morning. And so as we look again, as I say, beginning in verse 25, we're going to consider the sixth danger of growing up christian so that we might recognize that even good kids need christ reviewing just chapter 2 to bring us to where we are this morning verses 1 through 16 we demonstrated or paul demonstrated that the jew cannot find refuge from the wrath of god in his morality that is that his outward moral status is not sufficient to help him to escape from the wrath of God. Verses 17-24, through we found that the Jew cannot escape the wrath of God based upon his privilege. That is, that the Scriptures were uniquely given to him and were his possession to take to the world. That, That as well, even knowing the Bible intimately, is not sufficient to rescue you from God. This last section, verses 25-29, through 29, the end of the chapter, Paul is going to drive the Jew from his last refuge. And that is the rite of circumcision. He has now backed his imaginary opponents into the corner. There is one last place they have, flee, uh, they have fled to to try to avoid his indictment. And he's going to disab- he's going to disabuse them of that. This morning and thus leave them standing naked and guilty before God. Circumcision, Paul's addressing in verses twenty five to twenty nine. Circumcision was the outward mark in the human body, which distinguished the Jew from his heathen neighbors and demonstrated to all that he that is the Jew was a descendant of Abraham. It was given by God to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17. And Abraham was told that all of his male descendants proceeding through his son Isaac were to be circumcised in the foreskin of their flesh on the eighth day after their birth. This unique surgical mark was to designate them to be the people of God. And God was serious about this. This was not an option. For them, you might remember perhaps from Exodus chapter four that Moses was on the way to deliver the people from their Egyptian captivity and he had some sons and he had not gotten around to circumcising. And so in because of his disobedience, God nearly slew the great lawgiver himself over this issue. God is, was very, very serious about circumcision. It was not an option. It was a requirement, a God given requirement. Circumcision was an illustration. It was an illustration that was enacted in the flesh in order to teach the Jew something. What it was designed to teach him was that human sin is deep within us and is passed on from generation to generation through the parents. Therefore, just as the man's reproductive organ needed to be cleansed through circumcision in a far greater way, his heart needed to be cleansed through circumcision. It was this illustration carried in his flesh that the Jew was to thus recognize the need for the removal of sin from his body. Everywhere he went from his eighth day forward in life, for the rest of his life, he carried a mark that reminded him that sin was intimately a part of him and it must be cut out. It must be cleansed. The need to remove sin was the sign of what it meant to be a Jew. Paul is now going to address this subject. And he does it here in verses 25 and 29 with a very simple three-point structure for us. And what he does in verse 25 is he makes his point. I've given you a handout where you can follow along. Verse 25, he makes his point, and his point is, is that circumcision will not save you. Circumcision will not save you. For indeed, circumcision is of value, he says, if you practice the law. But if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. You notice verse 25 begins with the conjunction for And what that indicates is that these verses are logically connected to that which has preceded. Paul has not changed topics here into a completely different area. He is continuing his his indictment of the Jewish nation. As I said, he's moved from the morality to their privilege with Scripture to now the right of circumcision. They are all daisy chained together. And so this last aspect relates to that which has gone before. Paul is answering here, I believe, an imaginary opponent. We talked about that weeks ago when we first began this section. It's called a diatribe is the literary genre of this in which Paul imagines an opponent who would be arguing against him. And he puts the opponent's uh, arguments forward and then answers them. He doesn't necessarily raise the question, but by his answer, you can you can uh, figure out the question or the uh, the opposition that he has been encountering. And so what has been going on here is that Paul's imaginary opponent is beginning to feel the sting of the accusations that his morality is not sufficient. He doesn't cut the mustard that his receipt of the scripture, his, his possession of the very law of God, the very oracles of the living God is not sufficient either to make him right. And so he has one last bastion to run to called circumcision. And Paul is now attacking that. What we might suppose Paul to be saying here, really, in verse 25, the argument that he is addressing is something like this. His opponent might put forth the argument basically this way. Okay, all right. So we've failed and we haven't kept the law. We'll acknowledge that. But we still have circumcision. We still have our circumcision. So we are protected because of it. That is that we are still God's chosen people and the mark is right there to prove it. How do I know that this is the, the imaginings of that's going on here in this text? Well, it's very simple. There are numerous quotes from rabbis of that time period that speak to the issue of circumcision. For example, one rabbi said, no circumcised man will see hell. Another rabbi said circumcision saves from hell. Another wrote, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. And another one wrote, Abraham sits before the gates of hell and does not allow that any circumcised Israelite should enter there. So this is the background that's going on here. This is their refuge to which they have fled. The mark in the flesh is what will protect them from God. Religious ritual is this last safe haven and is the sixth danger that comes for growing up Christian. The reliance on religious ritual to make you right before God. So Paul acknowledges he acknowledges for indeed circumcision is of value he he responds to his imaginary opponent he says you're right circumcision is indeed valuable having been given by god as a sign of his covenant with us paul does not discount circumcision he doesn't say it's of no value he indeed acknowledges it is of value but it is only of value if you demonstrate the faith of abraham By means of keeping present tense verb there, by the way, the Mosaic law, you demonstrate the reality of your faith in the God of Abraham and in his covenant promise that God gave him by keeping the law that was later given through Moses. That's how Paul ties it together. He acknowledges circumcision is a very valuable thing. If, if you have the faith of Abraham. The issue remains it's the issue Paul raised back in verse 13. That it is not the hearers of the law who are just, but the doers of the law who shall be justified. That is that the, the, valid, the validity of your claim to a faith relationship with God comes by means of your external manifestation of your life. It's got to make a difference. It's got to change you. You can't just say you believe. Your words have to have substance. So what about... A Jew who is a transgressor of the law. Does his circumcision save him? Were the rabbis right or were the rabbis wrong? Well, Paul is going to argue here that if they are transgressors of the law, that is, if the Jew is a transgressor of the law, then they have in fact regrown their foreskins. That's kind of a literal translation. That they have become uncircumcised. That is, they have become like pagan Gentiles. Circumcision was never, ever intended to be a covering for sinful living. Never. It was a pledge and a spur to holy living. It was a pledge and a spur to holy living. It was a sign. That's all. Just a sign in the flesh. And it is of no value unless there is a reality behind the sign. It would be like a wedding band. It would be like a wedding band. A wedding band is a sign of marital fidelity. It does not produce faithfulness. It symbolizes it. It symbolizes it. The faithfulness must exist whether you wear the wedding band or not. In a similar way, circumcision is the sign of your commitment to the Abrahamic covenant, that is, to to a faith relationship to the God of Abraham. But it doesn't create the faith, it only symbolizes it. Paul's point here in verse 25 is very simple circumcision by itself will not save you it will not save you paul now brings proof to bear he's made his point verse 25 now verses 26 and 27 he's going to bring his proof to bear and he does it here through a couple of hypothetical questions A couple of hypothetical questions and through these questions, he really demonstrates the inescapable logic of his point that circumcision will not save you. And I know now this is hard for us because there's no one here, I don't think, who would make the claim that circumcision is what will make you right with God. But don't worry, when I get to the end, I'm going to make some application. Okay, so just hang with me here. So Paul does verse 26 and 27. He proves the point that he has just made and he does it through, as I said, two questions first question is, if a Gentile keeps the law, won't he be regarded as a covenant keeper? That's the gist of verse 26. If therefore the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? That is, if a Gentile keeps the law, won't he be regarded as a covenant keeper? Now, grammatically, Paul Uh, frames this question in verse 26 and the following question in verse 27 in a way that presupposes an affirmative answer, okay? So you can really turn these questions around and make them statements of fact. So the answer to the question is yes. It presupposes a yes answer, verse 26. If a Gentile keeps all the requirements of the law, he will be regarded as a keeper of the Abrahamic covenant. That is, he will demonstrate he has the faith of Abraham by his commitment to the law. Paul's second question. Won't this Gentile covenant keeper be a witness against you or judge you who both know the law and are pledged to keep it but don't? Answer, yes. 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 Verse 27, and will not he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? Yes, is the answer. What Paul has done here is shocking. Is absolutely shocking to the Jewish people. Jewish tradition pictured them sitting in judgment on the pagan nations. The Jews believe that God would use them to judge the unbelievers of the world, the heathen of the world. And Paul has now here flipped it around and said there's going to be a role reversal here. A role reversal. That is, that the Gentiles are going to sit in judgment upon you. Because although you bear a surgical mark in your flesh, there has been no inward transforming reality now verse 27 when it says that they will judge right will he not judge what uh, they mean what Paul means by that is not that the pagans will actually act as the judge for Christ alone is the judge verse 16, right, where Paul says, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of man through Christ Jesus. What Paul is really saying here is that the pagans will act as witnesses for the prosecution. That's the sense in which they will judge. They will be witnesses for the prosecution. That is that they're the evidence of their obedience to what the Jew ought to have done, what the Jew knows he should have done and what the Jew has not done will be the evidence that will be brought forward in judgment upon Israel in the day of the great judgment. Paul's words here, by the way, agree with those of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said something similar in Matthew chapter 12, verses 41 and 42, where Jesus said the men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it. Because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus said this generation of his countrymen, this Jewish generation, will be judged because they refused the truth of him. And yet the pagans recognized the truth of God when it was brought to them both at Nineveh and the Queen of Sheba and they both acknowledged God's truth. Paul says it's self-evident here. Circumcision will not save you. It will not save you. And the evidence of it is is that when a Gentile acts in faith, he becomes the child of God and will act as your child. Judge. that brings him to his principle Paul has a principle a universal principle verses 28 and 29 the universal principle of this text the principle is simple here it is salvation comes not by external ritual but by internal reality Salvation comes not by external ritual, but by internal reality. That's the universal principle that Paul makes from this text, and we will apply ourselves here. Paul has made the point, he has proved the point, that circumcision is no safe harbor. He's done this done this through his interrogation here of his imaginary opponent and he now makes this external principle and he does it by drawing upon a a difference between a Jew what he says is that not all Jews are the same not all Jews are the same that the appearance of a person is not what makes one a Jew now you got to remember we said that it was the children of Abraham through Isaac that bore in their flesh a mark right that showed them to be members of the covenant people. So Paul is kind of going after that and he's saying it's not this external mark that makes you a true Jew. It is the inward mark that makes you a true Jew. Now, let me insert just parenthetically here a by the way, okay? A by the way. Some commentators, particularly those of the covenant theology persuasion, find in these two verses a statement that all Christians are now Jews and thus have have inherited the promises to Israel and Israel has been set aside. And so now it's the Christians are the true Jews. And that's what Paul is trying to prove here in verses 28 and 29. Nothing could be further from the truth. Okay, nothing could be further from the truth. Paul does not say here that every Christian is a Jew. It does not say that in the text at all. It's imported into the text from somebody's presupposition. What Paul says is that not every Jew is a Jew. Not every Jew is a Jew. And in fact, the best way to sort of uh, uh, unsort this is to insert the word true before the word Jew and before the word circumcision in these two verses. Let me just read it again for you doing that. I think it'll help sort it out. For he is not a true Jew who is one outwardly, neither is true circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a true Jew who is one inwardly and true circumcision is that which is of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. And His praise is not from men, but from God. Paul is making a designation here between those who have experienced physical surgery and those who have experienced spiritual surgery. And he's saying that the physical surgery does not make you a child of the covenant. It is the spiritual surgery that has occurred in your heart, Jewish people, that make you a true child of Of Abraham. Authentic circumcision, Paul says, is not the removal of the foreskin, but is the cutting away of the old sinful nature which resides in your heart. You still have a sign, you still have a symbol, you still have a ritual, and you must comply. As I say, he nearly slew Moses because of Moses' failure to comply with his own sons. So it's not that Paul or God is discarding circumcision for the Jewish people. That's not the point. What he's saying is that it doesn't end there. It's just a picture. Back to my earlier illustration. Sticking a gold ring on your finger does not make you married, nor does it make you faithful. It is merely a symbol. Paul says, verse 28 again, he is not a Jew. Not a true Jew who is one outwardly. Neither is true circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a true Jew who is one inwardly. And true circumcision is that which of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. Just look at that little phrase there. Not by the letter. Paul is saying that the the human heart is circumcised not by the letter of the law. That is not by law keeping. Not by law keeping. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. It is spiritual surgery. It is not human surgery. It's not the using of a knife to cut away the skin. It is not the keeping of the Mosaic law that then performs the surgery. It is divine surgery done by the Spirit of God in the human heart that manifests itself in the keeping of the law. You've got to get the order right. You have to know which is the engine and which is the caboose. Because if you get them reversed, you've got no hope with God. Obedience to the law is a demonstration of the inward faith And that has been the recurring theme of this whole chapter. Now, this idea, by the way, that circumcision is of the heart is not a new concept with Paul. This concept is as old as the prophets and the law themselves. This is something the people should have known. This is not new revelation from God through Paul. And everybody sits there and goes, wow, I never heard that before. No, they've heard it since the time they were little It's embodied in the law. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. Moses writes, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. The prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart Men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or else my wrath will go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. It's a heart issue. It's always been a heart issue. It's, It's nothing but a heart issue with God. It always begins there and it ends there. Where do we stand before God? It Depends where our heart is before God. Paul has crushed his opponents here. He has removed the last city of refuge. There's no place now to go and flee from the wrath of God. He has put the Jewish nation on equal footing with the pagans of chapter 1. They have been brought down from their lofty position where they have placed themselves, thinking they were exempt from the wrath of God, and he has brought them right down To those of chapter 1. Everybody needs Jesus Christ. To the Jew first. And also to the Gentile. How does this passage now relate to you and I? How do we relate Paul's dismantlement of first century rabbinic Judaism to you and I here in the 21st century? How do we tie this? How do we leap the bridges of time and bring this forward? What's the enduring lesson? I think part of the answer can be found in the Christian rituals of baptism and the Lord's Supper. This is a perfect day to preach this message, by the way, because we begin with an illustration and we will end with an illustration. I think it's baptism... And communion are two significant ways to apply the truth that Paul has been talking about here. Both of these rituals were given by God to the church. And God cares very much whether we keep them or not. But like circumcision, they are merely external rituals. They are symbols that point to a greater reality that stands behind them. Unless that internal reality is present, then they are only external rituals and they are worthless. In fact, they are worse than worthless because they are deceptive and they can deceive one you would fall into a trap thinking that just by the keeping of these rituals, by, having, by being baptized, and by taking of the Lord's table, that somehow you are right with God. Salvation is for both Jew and Gentile. But it comes in only one way. By the granting of a new heart. By the sovereign work of God. Of the Spirit of God. Expressed through repentance and faith. That's Paul's message. By the Spirit, verse 29. This, by the way, was Jesus' message to Nicodemus in John 3. Do you remember that? Poor old Nicodemus was having a hard time figuring it out. No, I can't go in my mother's womb another time. What do, I, what do you mean be born from above? Born again remember what Jesus said to him? Are you a teacher or the teacher of the Jews and you don't understand this? This is the basic stuff. Salvation has always been by grace through faith, by the work of God in someone's life. Always. We began the service this morning with three young ladies publicly making declaration of their commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ they did it in the waters of baptism and it was a beautiful thing to behold a beautiful thing to behold it was god honoring act of obedience commanded in the scripture fulfilled here in our presence but if their testimonies and i don't believe it to be true but if their testimonies were not real And according to the Apostle Peter, all they did was take a warm bath. Nothing but a warm bath. It's an external picture of an internal reality. In a couple of minutes, we're going to pass around some grape juice and some broken cracker fragments. This is a picture These elements have no power to save. There is nothing inherent in them that will make you right with God. They are juice and they are bread. In the first century, the two most common elements of life. But they point to the One who gives real life. That's their value. That's their value. Jesus gave us this ritual so that we might remember His atoning sacrificial death on our behalf. By taking of the meal together, we celebrate the reality that based on our faith commitment to Him that we have been made right with our Creator and we have been brought together in a fellowship of brother and sister, the body of Christ. We have been made one by the indwelling Spirit of God. The juice and the bread are full of meaning, pregnant with meaning for those who have experienced the reality that they symbolize. If you have embraced Jesus Christ by faith, in his sacrifice, You believe it's for you that He died on that cross in your place. You believe that God raised Him from the dead the third day to demonstrate that His death was not for His own sin, but for yours. And you believe that that God has placed upon Him your guilt and it was punished there and that His righteousness has now been credited to you like a robe that now surrounds you if you believe. Then you're invited to partake. You're invited to partake. Romans chapter 2 has a lot to say to Christian young people. A lot to say. It says that your morality is not going to make it, that you don't keep the law, that you're defiled from the inside. you deserve the judgment of God. Chapter 2 says that your religious privilege will not save. The fact that you are in a fellowship of believers in which the Word of God is held in such high esteem. In which it is taught so faithfully and regularly. And in which you have such tremendous knowledge in your head. It will not make you right with God. Not for a moment. Romans chapter 2 says that God has given ritual to His church. Pictures to His church. Maybe you have participated in those pictures. Maybe you have been baptized. Maybe you partake of this meal together Paul says, do not for a moment think that will make you right with God. You could get wet every week. You could eat a whole tray full of it. It will do you no good. In fact, what it will do is ratchet up your condemnation. If there is no reality, the ritual has no value. These are the dangers of growing up Christian. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Father God, thank you For the surgical work of your Holy Spirit upon our hearts, our minds, our ears, our will. Our Father, we confess that we have nothing that we might offer in place of our own soul. That we are corrupt and defiled to the very core of our being. That the truth of circumcision is still a truth for all and that is the sin resides deep within us and has passed from generation to generation. There's no avoiding it. We all have it, Father, and it is a deadly disease. Thank You that Your Spirit has shown us these last weeks that there is no place that we can flee from Your wrath. No place of our own construction. Even taking the privileges that you have granted to us and somehow trying to offer them back, they too will not suffice. We are naked. We are ashamed. We are guilty. Our Father, we need a Savior. We need Jesus Christ. Lord, may You work this morning in the hearts of the people, all of our hearts, Father, to apply this truth to those who are here, Lord, who have yet to embrace Christ's sacrifice by faith, have yet to make it their own, have yet to personalize their trust that it remains still a vague intellectual reality. Lord, please make it a personal, experiential reality even now. Where they sit, Lord, enable them to call out to You. For those who have placed faith in You, Lord God, may You strengthen that faith even now as we reflect upon the great gift of Jesus Christ our Savior in this meal. We pray in His name. Amen.